You need to plant the flag in the sand that says, this year I'm going to do X. Make it public. The more public you make it, the more likely you are to be successful. Get other people involved. People want to help. That's what I think people think no one wants to get involved in their life. Ask for help. People want to help you and they will support you. If you want to just go out with the same friends and have ribs, french fries, and ice cream, then that's what's going to happen. You have to change some of those friends if they won't get on board. You have to really want to change something in your life to be successful. Like anyone, not just weight loss, right? You want to make more money? What are you going to do? Work harder or work less? It's three easy steps to accomplish anything. First, identify the problem. Hey, I'm overweight. I'm losing uh, all these things in my life I can't do anymore. Gosh, it's, it's terrible. I'm going to die at a young age. Number two, make a list. What you need to do. Oh, I need to move more. I need to eat better. Not rocket science. In the case of a kid, it's usually I need to do my homework. I need to study for the test, right? Number three, it's the only step nobody gets to. It's the only step that matters. And so if anyone's looking for this giant secret that I have on step number three, there isn't one. Step number three is go do it. Stop talking about it and actually do something. That's J.D. Roth, this week on the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Let's talk about obesity. On the one hand, we all know that it's an epidemic, but on the other hand, I'm really not sure that everyone fully comprehends just how severe this problem really is. It's an epidemic that is so large that currently one in three U.S. adults are obese and another third are overweight. And when you add to that about 18% of our children being morbidly obese, you realize that this puts an alarming amount of our nation at serious risk for contracting a whole litany of chronic lifestyle-related illnesses, everything from high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, liver disease, stroke. According to the CDC, more than 30 chronic health conditions are directly attributable to being obese or overweight. And this problem, this problem of obesity is so common in our culture that today's guest was able to build an entire career around the issue, creating and producing a little known TV show you might've heard of called The Biggest Loser. Uh, if you're under a rock and you've never heard of it, it is a primetime juggernaut that aired for an astonishing 17 seasons on network television, uh, as well as another show called Extreme Weight Loss, which was also super successful. My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. This is my podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. And today I sit down with J.D. Roth, who is the man behind these blockbuster television shows. We sit down to talk about his career, uh, the cultural phenomenon created by his shows, as well as all the controversies that swirl around and surround them. We really unpack that in depth. Uh, we get into the hows and whys and whatnots behind his decision, a decision that I think might surprise many of you to adopt a plant-based lifestyle. It's a decision he made about two and a half years ago. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, 
that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Okay, J.D. Roth. I guess the first thing that I want to talk about is that I am more than aware that there is a lot of criticism and controversy that swirls around his shows. The Biggest Loser was this crazy cultural phenomenon 
that I think it's fair to say was essentially built on, in many ways, fat shaming people and the extraordinary pressure that the contestants were under to lose an extreme amount of weight in what many experts consider to be an unreasonable amount of time. And the fact that in many cases, contestants lost the weight temporarily only to put it back on again after their season ended only kind of fueled this controversy and allowed it to sort of, you know, perpetuate well beyond the show. So I wanted to say as prefatory to this conversation that we get into all of this, which is great. JD was more than happy to discuss all of this, which I thought was really cool and, and, and very open-minded of him. We also talk about food, lifestyle, and the often overlooked mental issues that trigger people into treating their emotional problems with food instead of, you know, doing the work. Uh, we talk about JD's book, The Big Fat Truth, which explores the plant-based lifestyle, uh, his decision to adopt a plant-based lifestyle, the mental and psychological barriers that prevent most people from being healthy. And we also talk about his latest TV show, which goes by the same name, The Big Fat Truth, which premieres Sunday, June 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on a channel called Z Living, Z Living, uh, June 11th. And it's really cool. It's this new show that challenges and guides groups of participants unhappy with their weight and their health, including a couple former Biggest Loser contestants who gained the weight back and provides them with the tools to help them uncover and tackle the real issues behind the weight as they face the big fat truth. <laughs> and what's super interesting and unique about this new television show, what's fundamental to it is that it is adopting this plant-based diet approach to treating these people. It's the first TV show ever to do this, which is amazing. Uh, it features friend of the podcast, Dr. Michael Greger, as a sort of medical consultant on the program, which I think is amazing. And I even got to do a day on the show. I'll probably show up in a cameo in one of the episodes. And, you know, that was super fun. So anyway, we get into all of this stuff. Uh, we talk about how genetics may load the gun, but decisions pull the trigger. We talk about how the mental aspects of health, wellness, and weight loss uh, are really crucial and central to resolving these problems, how the real workout begins in your head. And regardless of your thoughts on his former shows, I can honestly say that JD sincerely cares about these issues. I really do think his heart is in the right place. He's a really good guy. I'm excited about his new TV show. And we had a really great conversation that I think you guys are gonna enjoy very, very much. So with all that said, here's me and JD. All right, man, let's rock it. Let's do it. So good to see you. You uh, too. I always feel lucky to be in a room with you. Oh, come I have on. To say, I admit that. It's true. It's true. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and, and, and talk to me. You got a lot of exciting things going on right now, and uh, I want to just dive into all of it, man. There are, there are three books that sit on my desk, and yours is one of them. Uh, I appreciate that. And you told me you went running this morning, right? I did. I That's did. That's good. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I mean, first and foremost, let's talk about the TV show. I mean, this is super exciting. The first... Uh, plant-based approach to lifestyle alteration that is going to go to air pretty soon, right? In April? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be in May now. Oh, it's going to be in May. A, a little uh -huh. bit later. But for me, you know, this is how I live my life. So it's such a blessing to be able to have something that you wake up every day excited about and turn that into entertainment. Mm -hmm. So now instead of reaching whatever it is, maybe a doctor can reach 20 or 30 patients a week, right? 
I can reach potentially millions of people in a week by doing the show. And so it just helps to get that message out there, which is important to me. And I know it's important to you too. Yeah, of course. So the big fat truth, where did the idea for this come from? Uh, the idea came out of my book, mm-hmm. which is uh, the same title, same The Big title. Fat Truth. What I really wanted to do was expose kind of the big fat truth around weight loss and how it really doesn't have much to do with being in the gym, which most of my shows, as you know, Mm -hmm. that's a priority. It really has to do with the mental work that you do and the food that you put in your mouth. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And what I found over the years is the more focus you get on the food, the better the results. Yeah. You can't uh, exercise your way out of a poor diet. Not ultimately, at all. ultimately. I mean, you can get yourself to a place where you look good, but if you're dying on the inside and your arteries are clogged, that's not going to go in a good direction for yeah, you, you. You can't run that off. Right. And, so, and I think what I learned so far is that people who overeat, and I'm not talking about the guy who's 20 pounds overweight. I'm talking about the people I work with, 300, 400, 500 pounds. They need volume. Mm-hmm. And so imagine all these people, their whole life have been told, you need to go on a diet. Mm -hmm. What's the first, the the real definition of a diet is restriction. So somebody who loves volume, that's a problem Mm -hmm. right off the bat. They're instantly, they feel like they're restricting. They're not getting what they want. The more they don't get what they want, the more they want it. Then it's a mental game that they can't win. So if I can replace volume with volume, it's no longer a diet. Right. This is something that uh, Chef AJ talks about all the time. Do you know Chef AJ? I do. Yeah. She, you know, talking about nutritional density and she shows these, when she gives her talk, she shows these, you know, pictures of, you know, listen, uh, like pictures of the inside of a stomach and, you know, however many, like 400 calories, if it's oil, it's just a tiny, you know, it's like a couple teaspoons. Right. Or if you're just eating vegetables, you know, like. Fill the room. Yeah. You can fill your entire stomach. And you have all this nutritional density, but it's very calorically low in density. Yeah, and that's the beauty. So I, I, the way I put it is I'm going to replace a pound of bricks that you've been eating with a pound of feathers. Mm-hmm. It's still a pound, only it's so much better for you. And instead of being calorically dense, it is nutritionally dense, which is what your body needs. And once you give your body what it needs and you start feeding your mind, the two feed off of each other, and then the body follows. You don't have to do much work after uh-huh. that. So how did you arrive at this? Like, what is your story of, you know, kind of being delivered to the plant-based Yeah, yeah. Know, I, well, I started by, by eating a lot of steak uh-huh. and a lot of uh, French fries and a lot of hamburgers and working out a ton. And I, I definitely ate healthier than the next guy, right? You know, I mean, I, I was definitely conscious of what I was eating. I never had a weight problem my whole life. And my wife started uh, going plant-based. Um, What inspired her? uh, She had high cholesterol based on a family gene. And of course, as we know, my favorite Dr. Gregor line ever is genetics load the gun and decisions pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. And she decided, you know what I want to do? I'm just going to make better decisions. Hmm. And so she got really hardcore about it. She did not want to be on medication. And I'm sure the doctors were telling her, look, you got to be on, you know, take take the pills, right? Her dad's on the pill. Right. Uh, everyone in her family it's was taking genet- the pill. It's genetic. Yep. You just, just something you're going to have to do. So I fight it. It's too much work. So how did she come into this awareness that there might be another way? She went and did some research online. She uh, went to nutrition.org you know, and, uh-huh. uh, and started getting Gre- – uh, Gregor's voice was playing in my head. It was playing so much in the house. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and she slowly figured it out. And it was trial and error. And then I have the cancer gene in my family, mm-hmm. uh, the BRCA gene. And it's inevitable at some point that I'm going to that I'm going to be staring that in the face. And all the research pointed to, well, you can prevent this, that you can actually. And that's when the forks over knives. Mm-hmm. We got into that. 
and we became friends with T. Colin Campbell. And it, once you are faced with all the research that's out there, you cannot deny it. Right. It's impossible to deny it. And then slowly but surely, she was like, well, this is what I love about plant-based eaters. And I'm now one of them for the last two and a half years. But here's what I love about plant-based eaters. They want you in their tent. They want you to just try it. A lot of times what I find is the real hardcore, you know, vegetarian or ve- right there. It's all or nothing. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't even wear a belt. That's this. and you can- It's the planet. It's- but something about whole food plant-based eaters, it's so inviting. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, just try it for breakfast and see what you think. Yeah, don't let uh, perfection be the enemy of progress. And I, I feel like there's there's an issue in in the vegan camp in terms of how we communicate advocacy. And you know, once somebody dips their toe in, if they make a mistake, then they get ganged up on, and Absolutely. then they retreat. And it's like, well, what do you expect them to do, right? You got to like create a welcome mat for somebody where they feel comfortable enough to dip their toe in and it's okay if they make a mistake and you trust them to like move forward and you know have their own journey with it. It's a much easier sell to say to a friend of mine, hey, why don't you have what I have for lunch? How do you feel? Mm -hmm. Do you feel better? Uh, Maybe you wanna try it for dinner too. Mm -hmm. You know, and slowly but surely, my dream is that one day we have Meat Monday. That's my dream. Right. How about like no meat any any of the time? That, right. <laughs> That's that, getting into the perfection great. thing, right? But can you imagine if instead of Meatless Monday, it got so good on the planet that you actually have Meat Monday? We've reversed it. Mm-hmm. That's really, in, in the end, that's really the goal. And I was somebody who I wouldn't think in the beginning could have been converted. And now I'm such a believer and I feel so much better and life is so much easier because of it. Everyone thinks it's, so, it's such a hard thing to do. It really isn't. Yeah, it's not. How do you travel? How do you do it when you're here? And it's like, I've been doing it for 10 years. It's so rote. Like, I don't even think about it. It doesn't seem like an imposition or an inconvenience so at So what all. do you do? You get to your hotel room and what do you do? I'm curious. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, I try to plan ahead and bring things on the plane if it's a long flight. And, you know, if I'm flying American, there's, there's real food daily right in the LAX terminal so I can get a green juice and something healthy to bring with me on the plane. If not, I make a trip to Whole Foods and get some nuts and some dates and some bananas and, you know, some green juice or something like that. I bring it with me. I try to uh, uh, sort of forecast, like, look at where I'm going. Okay, where's the healthy market that's nearest to my hotel? Sometimes I'll take the cab uh, directly to the market before I even check into the hotel. I try to check into hotels that have little kitchens. If I'm traveling with my wife or my family, sometimes we even bring our Vitamix. So the more armed you are with convenient choices within arm's length, the better off you're going to be. Um, And that's not always the case. Sometimes I'm moving all over the place and then I rely on Happy Cow to tell me where the closest, you know, vegan restaurant is, it always works out. I'm you know? amazed that when you go to a restaurant that isn't vegan and you say, oh, I'm, I'm plant-based, and I'm, it, I, I would say a third of the time they come back out from the kitchen and say, oh, one of the chefs back there is plant-based too. He mm-hmm. just wants to make you something. Are you okay with that? Yeah, they're kind of excited because oh, they get to make something different. And, you know, you can just, if you don't want to be in a position at the table, go, you know, excuse yourself, go find the waiter, go, hey man, just make me like the hugest salad you've ever seen. Or can you just you know, whip up some, a couple baked potatoes and maybe a plate of rice with vegetables, you know, just whatever. It doesn't matter. It's like, just bring me a huge plate of whatever you got. Right. And it's always fine. You know, it always works out. And I've gone to crazy places. I've been across Saudi Arabia. I've been to Pakistan. I've been to, you know, Morocco. Like I've never had a problem. I mean, worst case scenario is 
late night room service where it's like rice and soggy, you know, vegetables. Right. And right. so it's not it's not like you're gonna get a cafe gratitude type dinner every time, but you can always make it work. You know what I mean? If you're committed and this this is your thing, uh, it's just never been that big of an issue. I agree. I was walking through Whole Foods um, Tuesday, and uh, I saw that in their restaurant they had a jackfruit taco special. Mm-hmm. I stopped everything I was doing, sat down, had some jackfruit tacos. If you're aware and you want to be aware, it's all around you. Right. So two and a half years ago, how yeah. long after your wife? Like, was there a learning curve of like getting on board with this, or oh, you just saw time. results with her, or how did how did that process I, work for you? She was always a hundred and five pounds soaking wet. She always looked good to me. You know what I mean? She was always fit. She was always healthy. She was she was always the one counting out her nuts. You know what I mean? This was something new, and I was definitely not a believer right away. Hey, I invented weight loss uh, in prime time right, for you're television. You're the guy. Don't tell me how, exactly. how I'm supposed to lose weight. I know more than you. But what's interesting about both you and your wife is that it wasn't about weight loss for either of you. Nope. It was about a, strictly a health choice. Mm-hmm. And, and she would bring things out. And uh, like any normal man, and I have two boys, we're cavemen. Put something in front of us that tastes good and we'll eat it. We don't care what it is. Uh You can make this table taste good. I'm eating it. And she'd bring something out. And if it didn't taste good, we would just shake our heads. And to her credit, she would go back in and she'd read. I don't know what. She threw it up in the air and it came down to something else. And she'd bring it back out again. And we'd Uh go, uh. And then she'd do it a third time. And when she came out the fifth time and we'd go, yes. She'd put a check mark next to that one and she'd work on a new meal. And when she got 10 meals that were good, she kind of put those in the rotation. Mm-hmm. And then we became consumed by it. It sort of became, you know, like you, it became kind of our way of storytelling our life. Mm-hmm. And now nobody will even go to dinner with us without us ordering first. Right. As you know, which I'm not judging. <laughs> uh-huh. You know what I mean? This is how I'm living my life. This is the choice I'm making. I will not get cancer one day and say, oh, why didn't I just do what I knew was the healthiest thing. I right. will, that will not happen. What will happen is maybe one day I will get it and I'll be able to say, I did everything I could. And if it happens at 80, maybe it would have happened at 60 if I didn't do these things. Meanwhile, the vitality and the energy and all the benefits you get to experience leading up to that, even if, yeah, because sometimes shit just happens, right? Yep. So, you know, we can do the best that we can to avoid these things in certain circumstances, you know, it's not our fault, right? And, and when you but, work out seven days a week, I have no recovery issues. I am, I'll be 50 years old. I, mm-hmm. I, I've literally, I'm never sore. I'm never uncomfortable. I never have joint pain, no, no inflammation. All the, that's, that's a byproduct. Right. Well, you're preaching to the choir on that one. You know, that's, that's my experience and that's what I'm constantly talking about. And people think like, oh, well, you're just an outlier. You have some enzyme that other people don't have or something like that. They're, they're people that are very rooted in their beliefs around food, which is very emotional. And I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, you know, they can then be dismissive. Well, you can do it, but most people can't. Hey, look, is it a loss that I don't take my boys once a month? to a steak dinner and do what guys do and watch the football. You know, it's, I think as far as it's a social uh, image that people have of dads and their son or boys, huh? Meat, huh? Mm-hmm. We, we eat meat. But the reality is we do something else and it doesn't necessarily have to revolve around food. And it's the same nostalgia that they'll have when they get older to want to do those things. So I, I have not looked at it as a loss. In the beginning, it felt like a loss. Then you have the out-of-body experience when you go with your buddies to the steakhouse and you're a year into being plant-based. And so you think, oh, I'm just gonna, I'll just order the vegetables, the veggie sides. I'll be fine. Order the veggie sides. And the room, all of a sudden, like, like a car accident in slow-mo, you watch everybody cutting into this animal. Uh-huh. And, you, and you are so grossed out by it 
I, if you told me I would have that experience, I would have told you you were out of your mind. And literally, it happened in slow motion for me. Of course, I go home, sleep like a baby. They got the meat sweats. They're sick as a dog the next day, and, and I have nothing. Mm-hmm. So your boys are both plant-based? They are at home. Uh-huh. So what we serve, breakfast, dinner, 100% plant-based. If we, go, <laughs> if we go out to dinner, we tell them they can have whatever they want. And I think the reason for that is... I don't need them going to college and coming unhinged. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that kids don't listen to a word you say, but they watch everything you do. And I think them just soaking up how important our own health is to us, moving and also the way we eat, they're soaking it up. And so they understand the lifestyle and they live it, but I don't want to put restrictions on them at, in their teenage years that seem you know, extreme. Yeah, I think that that's a very similar approach that we've taken to our kids. They're, we've got four, and they're spread out in ages, but um, but that's sort of the same rule. Like this is how we prepare food in the house, and my wife is an insane cook, and so they have learned over time to prefer that food. But by not creating rules about what they can or can't do outside the house, allows them to explore themselves and to have agency over their choices. And I think as a developing human, that's really important. If you're too strict about these things, you're setting yourself up for rebellion later because every kid is going to, you know, push the boundaries and that's what they're supposed to do as they mature. And, you know, just to say F you to the parents, you know, they're going to go and do it. And, and that's not healthy, right? So by allowing them that freedom to explore these things, Meanwhile, educating them as best as you can and walking your talk, which is the most important thing. Totally because agree. If you're if you're face planning in Hagen Dazs at midnight and you think your kids don't know, you're 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 in for you know a, a big surprise because they they know what's up. You know what I mean? They're they much do. more attuned than than you think, and they pay attention to those little subtle cues. And so you're setting them up for success down the line because what's most important is how they're going to be eating 20 years from now what are they going to what are the choices they're going to make when nobody's looking at them right and you think about it too from their perspective if they feel that you're going to judge then it's secretive right then you're then you're going to then they're going to lie exactly and then if they lie and it's secretive then it becomes like there's some pleasure principle around that they've created around this secret and i don't want it to be this great thing that they're sneaking around because it isn't Mm-hmm. So I tell them, you want to have the ribs at dinner when we're out? Go go for it. Knock yourself out. Right. But at home, this is the way we eat and this is the way we live our life. Uh-huh. And they're creating great habits. I, I am not worried. I don't know about you. you know, you're, I'm not worried at all that they'll make the right decision when the time comes. And your wife's cholesterol? Unbelievably low mm-hmm. and, and hard to imagine. Everyone in her family is, you know, north of 250. And um, hers is, I think she had a test last week, 161, 162, right. yeah. which for somebody with the gene is unheard of. That's and you know, fantastic. LDL's off the charts, right? right? So right. that's where right. you want. Yeah, that's the, cool. The right high and the right low. So when does it uh, when does it dawn upon you that there might be a TV show baked into this? I think when I wrote the book and I felt that the shortcut or the mind games that I have been proprietarily giving to only contestants on the shows for years could be useful to a lot of other people. But there's no real narrative for a TV show in that, mm-hmm. right? You know, you show moments of conflict, you show highs and lows and weigh-ins and tears, and, but there's never any of this off-camera stuff that I thought was really valuable. There's a lot of really valuable stories that happen that aren't television worthy, mm-hmm. but they're worthy uh, to help somebody change their life. 
So I try to use those stories as part of the book to share with people how it's really done, where the magic really happens. So I took my speeches that I give the, every contestant almost verbatim and cut them into chapters and then tried to explore around that and some personal stories in the show about commitment. You know what it's like. Someone says, I am going to be a plant-based eater. And then one day later, they're at McDonald's. Uh -huh. So, or I'm going to go on a diet. And then that same day, they're off the diet. So how do you show them what the picture of success looks like, allowing them to maybe create their own picture of what success looks like? People need help. And so I, w I was hoping that the book would allow some help um, and I don't preach in the book. I just share. Uh -huh. And um, I, I really thought that that could have could be a television show after I had written it. Right. And it's it's a it's a conundrum, right? Because you're trying to approach this from a lifestyle, like a sustainable lifestyle alteration approach, as opposed to fixation on a number on a scale. Because you know when you have that, you sort of have a ticking clock, right? And you can create all kinds of tension and drama around that. But if you're saying to somebody, forget about what that number is. And let's talk about the psychology. How do you think about food and what's going on with you emotionally? And how can I, you know, create a new narrative around who you are and what's important to you that can, you know, fuel your decision making for the rest of your life? It's yep. harder to like, okay, how are we gonna how are we gonna you know exploit is a negative word, but how can we, you know, take that and and create something uh, adequately dramatic enough that it's gonna play to a television audience? Hey, look, nobody is hungry enough to eat themselves to 400 pounds. What they perceive as hunger pain is emotional pain. Done. That, that's open shut case. So if that's the case, then at what point in their life, where did it happen where food became the moment of pleasure and that loop of miserable to pleasure, miserable to pleasure, I need this to be happy, I need this to be happy. When did that happen? How many thousands of times have you repeated that loop? And then how do we break that loop and show you a new way to exercise pleasure? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you got to get into why people are using food to medicate their emotional state and, and just to get people to understand and realize that that's what they're actually doing as opposed to just you know, reflexively responding to a hunger impulse requires some psychological heavy lifting. A lot. You think about it. The number one thing I would tell everybody about weight loss, because you can imagine everywhere I go, first question is, hey, man, how can I lose 10 pounds? Mm -hmm. There's only two ways to guarantee it. One way is when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you see? The bedrooms I've been in, every 50 pounds overweight, 50, 100, 150, 200, every 50 pounds overweight is a, a, a bedroom that is in more disaster and chaos than you've ever seen before. So by the time you Meaning get- Meaning the relationship or, or what is physically present in the bedroom? What are you talking literally about? Literally what is physically present in the bedroom. Like open pizza boxes on the bed or- what? Beyond, a big gulp <laughs> uh -huh. with the sweat mark on it, mail piled up to the ceiling, laundry, piles of laundry, bo unopened boxes. It's a disaster. And my vision of how you can really, if you really want to lose weight, what you should do is empty your bedroom is the first thing you should do. Uh, as a, as sort it. of a, a, a metaphor for the clutter that exists in the mind. Of course. It, it is a microcosm of what's going on in your mind. And it's the first thing your eyes, when they open, see. They see chaos. So chaos begins in your mind. Now you walk into the shower, and I've seen people with pliers for their hot 
side of their water because the handle broke off mm-hmm. and the shower it's all beat up and disgusting in there and they don't and the towel's 20 years old and then they get dressed they go downstairs they step over dog crap in the sidewalk they get into their car where the door doesn't work the car bar- by the time you get to your office that top left drawer that has the candy bar in it is the first reach you're going to grab and it ain't even 9 a.m well it's a physical manifestation of how somebody feels about themselves, right? Because once you start to tip those dominoes and the weight goes on and you feel less great about yourself than you did yesterday, that sets into motion a whole series of events that get you less and less interested in taking care of yourself. And And so all those other things start to fall by the wayside. And pretty soon you won't even look at the reflection of the spoon you're lifting up to your mouth every time. Well, who cares? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I say clean the bedroom out completely. Put a bed put a chair, put some dresser, a dresser in there, and that's it. Literally nothing else is in that room. And then when your eyes open in the morning, you see calm, you see organized, right? And take a minute, sit there. Like I love meditation. I know you do too, but I love the idea of sitting in a space that you're comfortable in. Start the day off happy. If you make one good decision, first thing when your eyes open, chances are you'll make two. You'll stack good decisions on top of each other. You make a bad decision to start with the day, it's going downhill from there for sure. Mm -hmm. What is the kind of typical psychological makeup uh, of the, you know, standard person that shows up on one of your TV shows? You can divide it into one of maybe five or six categories. Um, And a lot of it has to do with not having the, um, the ability to process certain things that happen in their life. So let's say um, you have a loss of a parent. 99 out of 100 people can go through the grieving process. They're fine. They get past it. They move on. One out of 100 does not have the tools in the shed to deal with it. And because of that, life freezes in that moment. I've met with people that still have their parents' insulin needles in their refrigerator for nine years after their death. Mm. They still have stuff in the refrigerator for their parent. They haven't dealt with it, and they're not equipped to deal with it. And so their life becomes frozen in that time. There could be 20 people that you know that had some form of abuse in their life. 15 of them move on with their life, successful relationships. Five couldn't process it emotionally and didn't have the tools or the parents around them or the people around them to help them and got caught in a trap. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like we shouldn't uh, be ne- treat these people in a negative way just by how they look. We should look at them. What I see when I see someone super overweight is I know someone's in pain. I know something happened to them, whether it was a loss, whether it was a parent divorce, whether it was abuse, something happened to them that they, they weren't equipped to handle. They didn't have the tools to deal with it. It's our job as human beings to reach out to those people and help them. And I find that the largest person in the room is the most invisible. And that's tragic to me. Mm -hmm. The bigger you get, the less people see you. Mm -hmm. And you could put somebody like that on a diet and get them to lose a little bit of weight, but that's never going to... Oh, it's coming right back (laughs) on. Yeah, it's going to come right back on. So what is the process of starting to treat an individual like that other than clearing out their bedroom, like the psychological work that has to go into you know, reframing their perspective on the, on themselves and, and ultimately, you know, reshaping their relationship with food. And those are the people that lose the weight and keep it off. The majority, as we all know, in the real world, you lose 100 pounds, it's less than 5% of the people two years later have kept it off, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is the same percentage for alcoholics and drug addicts who, are, you know, who went to rehab. So it, it seems like that recidivism rate is very similar across the board. Mm-hmm. On our shows collectively, it's about 50%. So 
So it's 10 times the national average. Mm -hmm. So clearly we have a good mousetrap. It's just we can't handle as many people as we'd like. I'd like to be able to handle millions of people like that. The world would be a better place because the work is very significant. You got to have people who want to look at the view less than they want to look in the mirror. Well, want is the critical word, right? Because they have to be willing. You know, they have to they have to be in enough pain or they have to be motivated enough by, you know, the foreseeable, you know, imagined future of what they want to be and achieve in order to get them into that place where they're willing to like do the hard work that it's going to that's going to be required to make that shift a shift that's going to actually stick. I'll give you the perfect example of what you just said. One year on the biggest loser, we had our fi our finals for casting. You know, maybe 40 people come in. We're only going to take 15 of them after we've narrowed it down from tens of thousands. And we watch them work out and we do speeches and we watch what they order, you know, room service. And we really take a look at these people. I've gotten good at weeding out the people who aren't going to spend the time looking in the mirror. I get back from our medical team. Two of the people um, for medical reasons cannot continue. One of them was a pizza owner, owned a pizza shop and his name was Mario. And he looked like a guy who owns a pizza shop named Mario, mm -hmm. right? The, look in the dictionary under Mario, it's a picture of him. The other guy was a white collar guy um, who had a heart issue and they weren't going to let him continue because he was too sick to be on The Biggest Loser. Let me tell you the, the story. The pizza guy got so upset and so angry at the situation, he zipped his bag up and left immediately without saying a word to anyone. The white collar guy said, you know what I'm going to do? Do you mind? I'm already here. There's four more days left of casting. Do you mind if I just listen to the speeches and see what people are working out in the gym and try to soak up as much knowledge as I can before I leave? I said, no, not a problem. Right, like the difference being the guy who was just in it for being on TV versus the guy who actually had a legitimate, genuine interest in, in changing his life. And the end of the story is after four days of watching this guy crush it and learn and be around people and inspire, I went back to the doctor and I said, is there anything we could do? Is there any test we could give him? And he said, actually there is, but it's $5,000 more. But it would clear him to be on the show. I said, run the test. Mm -hmm. The guy got on and lost almost 200 pounds. Mm. The Did pizza guy, six months later, died of a heart attack. Oh, and I can't bad. help but think, and it was his fourth time auditioning for the show. I wrote about it in the book. Mm -hmm. I can't help but think, what would have happened if after the first audition that he didn't get it, if he went home and did it? Would his wife still have a husband? Would his daughter still have a dad? Would he still be on the planet to make people smile? He was one of the happiest guys I ever met. And it's too bad that in the end, he was so counting on the biggest loser solving all his problems mm -hmm. versus him solving it and him inspiring himself that he ended up dying way too young. That's tragic, uh, but it also speaks to what we were talking about earlier about agency. You know, if you're always looking at outside yourself for somebody else to solve this problem for you, as opposed to taking, you know, shouldering the responsibility yourself and taking it seriously and and doing the heavy lifting and the hard work and you know weathering the difficult moments that are inevitably going to be required of you, that's how you make the shift, right? Yep. Yep. Well, so, although you make me nervous when I hear you say agency, I turn around and think someone's coming to take oh, 10%. Yeah. In, my, in my world- We're actually doing the podcast at CAA, yeah. at an agency, right? <laughs> so there's plenty of agents walking around outside Taking 10% of moment. what's in my yeah. pocket as we speak. <laughs> That's funny. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about The Biggest Loser, all right? Let's, let's, uh, let's explore this a little bit. I mean, first of all, co-creator of the show, right? 
And your background, I mean, you were like a child actor, right? Yeah. And then a, like a voiceover actor and then a, like a game show host. Like you did yeah. it all as a young person, right? So yeah. you got into this business like super young. I did, 10 years old. It's been 40 years in show business for me. Wow. And um, I don't think if someone said to me, hey, you're going to be producing weight loss shows, I, I, you know, I would have laughed. I would have uh-huh. been like, no, what no, the, not. What was the plan? I was, I was going to be Pat Sajak. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was, uh, so it wasn't Marlon Brando or Robert Redford. Like you knew that was, you wanted to be like a host. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. What is that? Like, I was what, really good like, at playing myself. Yeah. Were you like in the mirror as a kid with a, holding a microphone, pretending like you were worse. Wheel of Fortune or something? Worse. I would roll <laughs> up the TV guide. This is the story my parents say. And when the mailman would come over and, you know, drop the mail off, I would interview him at the door. You know, I was always fascinated with that idea that you could be yourself. Mm-hmm. You could go on and kibitz and joke around and still flex that muscle of understanding a format, when to push, when to relax, when to lean in and move things forward, when not to. So when my family would sit home watching Wheel of Fortune, I would say Pat's lines and they would try to solve the puzzle and they would drive them crazy. But that's always what I wanted to do is be mm-hmm. a producer. And honestly, the convergence- Yeah, because most people, when they watch that, they're in the seat of the contestant trying to solve right. the puzzle, right? I had no interest in that. Yeah. And the convergence of game and reality around the year 2000 is what changed my life because reality was starting to be a real thing. Right. And in the end, they needed people who understood game compliance um, and storytelling. And there weren't many that were young. Game show guys were old and mm-hmm. salty dogs. And here I was at the time, you know, I was 30 years old and had a, several thousand episodes of game shows, both in production and hosting behind what were, me. What were some of the shows that you hosted? Um, I hosted the, the first big show. I was in college at SC and I booked a show called Funhouse in the late 80s. And it was supposed to be 22 episodes for the first season. By the end of the first week, it was the number one, <laughs> number one show in America uh-huh. for and kids. And you're still in college. I'm still in a dorm. Wow. And I literally went from the dorm room to the cover of Teen Beat in less than a month. And they ordered 195 episodes of wow. the show. And that changed my life completely. And I always knew, I met Dick Clark back in those days. And Dick said to me, hey, you're great, you're great. You're the next me, kid. And he said, but remember, ownership is everything. Mm. Don't just be a meat puppet. That's, these are his exact words. And I realized in the end- And he was, like he created this huge production entity, that's right. right? That's right. And that was what really made him the money. You can be a meat puppet. You can look good, right? That's great. But owning the shows and controlling your destiny, giving yourself the jobs, owning formats, creating formats, producing formats, mm-hmm. that was where it was. And were you studying film and television at USC? I was. And uh-huh. um, I left early uh, because the show just became so big. I could no longer live in the dorm room. And I, re- I remember telling my Jewish mom, hey, uh, the first year I don't have a TV show on the air, I'll go back uh-huh. and get my degree. Have you gone back? That was 1988. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I've had a show every year since. Uh-huh. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. 
From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, so that set you up. You're the new guy, right? Yep. And, uh, and so... At some point, so this was when this was so that this was a long time ago, right? So just hundreds and hundreds of shows in between, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, lots. And then reality kind of enters the picture and blows up as you know. And I was a storyteller. I mm-hmm. love telling stories. The fact that I could add game and story together, no brainer. Mm-hmm. Coming up with formats, I did that every day for fun. So to come up with formats that were story driven, it was like a dream come true. Was I trying to come up with a weight loss show? No, I was trying to come up with a show I could sell. Mm-hmm. I remember when the network bought the show, they said, how much do you think someone can lose? I was like, a good salesman tells them whatever they want to hear. I go, 100 pounds. Guy's like, 100 pounds? Seriously? Absolutely. I didn't even do the math to divide how many weeks of production by 100 pounds to see how much they'd have to lose. Turns out, it was a shitload. It was too much. Right. There's no way. So I started calling experts around the country, weight loss experts, doctors, medical institutions. They all gave me the same answer. And like any good salesman, when you don't get the answer you want, you just hang up the phone and call somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I got one to two pounds a week. Click. Call the next one. One to two pounds a week. Click. Now I'm panicked. Production starts. Right. You sold the shit. You sold it, right? Yeah. I and promised there had pounds. Never, there had never been a weight loss Nope. reality show, right? Like Never. this is brand new territory. And if my memory serves me correctly, it was, I mean, it was sort of a hard sell, right? Like who's going to want to watch this? TV is about one thing, wish fulfillment. Beautiful people, beautiful cars, beautiful locations, hot girls. It was not about a 300 pound woman. Like, can you imagine pitching that to the network? But it is about emotionally connecting with a protagonist. Ding, ding. That was the thing. That was how it ended up getting sold. To be able to say to them, hey, look, these are emotional stories of people like your sister and your brother and your parent and your coworker and your best friend. You know these people. And I really wanted to change the conversation at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know. I was a TV producer, not a 
weight loss fitness. I, and I, you were 30 at this time? I was. It was 14 years ago. So I was, I was 30, 34, 35 when the show premiered. And had you created other shows prior to that? Oh, I, yeah. You I had, had had big success with a show called For Love or Money. 28 million people watched the first finale. Four seasons of that show on primetime at NBC. So this was the next NBC show that I gotcha. was going to do. Uh-huh. So then I go back to the president of NBC and I say, kind of in a whispered voice, hey, uh, I know we started, but it turns out I called every expert in America. Turns out you can only lose one to two pounds a week. And I'll never forget this moment. We're still friends. The guy leaned forward across the table and he said, it turns out if they lose only one to two pounds a week, you'll never work at this network again. You promised me a hundred pounds. And this sets in motion a series of events Panic. that, for better or worse, have created success, but also quite a bit of controversy. You know what? I, I actually would argue the opposite, which is it has done more good for millions of people and inspired millions of people. In the beginning, I was just trying to get people to order the side salad instead of the French fries, mm-hmm. trying to get people not to hit their snooze button. Who knew that there'd be a movement so big it would almost be a new religion? You, know, you think about it. Here's how I got the weight off of them. I looked at doctors and scientists and thought, all they're doing is measuring calories in versus calories out equals one to two pounds a week. Nobody measured love. Nobody measured hugs. Nobody measured inspiration. Mm-hmm. Scientists don't measure shit like that because it doesn't interest them because that's not something they can calculate. So I loved the weight off of them. I ran next to them. I worked out with them. I cried with them. I hugged them. I was not afraid of their fat, of their sweat, of their smell, none of it. And I looked them in the eye and told them they could do it. And do you know how many years it had been since somebody looked them in the eye and said, you could do it? Decades. Mm -hmm. They were in a dark room with every light bulb out. I showed them how to turn those light bulbs on. And in that moment of inspiration, we realized tears really dealing with your emotional stuff Tears, way more than fat. And you could have a week where somebody lost one pound, a week where someone lost zero, and another week where they lost one, and then they have an emotional breakthrough and they lose 10 pounds, 12 pounds. And those tears do way more than fat. And you cannot have a breakthrough without a breakdown. I know that for sure. Well, that is the reason why the show was so successful, right? It's the emotional component of it. It is the breakdown. It is the breakthrough. And it is the the love and the support and the inspiration that comes from that. When you see these people that, you know, the average audience member can relate to, they see themselves or they see their relative or somebody that they care about deeply in that individual. And they go on that journey, that like hero's journey. Of course, you're going to you're going to captivate people with trying to figure out what's going to happen next. I mean, how many I so, know the most miserable people on the planet can run a 7.0 on a treadmill for an hour. Big deal. I mean, they're happy. You know? So, well, what makes you happy? How are you going to get happy inside? Whether you're fat, thin, tall, short, doesn't none of that matters. It's uh it's a game of endorphins, right? We're all chasing endorphins so we can all be happy. Mm-hmm. And that's really I, I I try to show them how to find that in their life again. And how many how many years has the show been going on? Like uh, the show's been 16, on fourteen years. Fourteen years. We've done eighteen seasons. Wow, yeah. eighteen seasons. And how have you seen? Have you seen the show change over that period of time? Sure. Did it morph into something different than than you know it originally was? And you well, know, like how do all you... successful shows, you know, there becomes a lot of people who jump onto the, that success, right? And then they all want their share. They all want a bite. 
of the apple. So yeah, of course it changes and it isn't as pure as it was in the beginning and it's a competitive <laughs> show. Mm -hmm. So you got people trying to outdo the people from before and outdo, right? So it's all of that that you try to manage in any hit, whether it's scripted, unscripted, film, all has the same problems, is that in a lot of ways, shows eat themselves from the inside. The audience doesn't get tired of them. The people making the show get tired of figuring out how to make it new and fresh and exciting for them. Mm -hmm. And it becomes such a juggernaut. It's, it's generating so much income for everybody involved that you got to keep it going. No doubt about it. And, and I really felt like we were doing some, something really good. Think about it. Thanksgiving dinner. You're around the table. Every table in America, right, has got a Thanksgiving dinner. You always pick on people at Thanksgiving dinner. First person you go to is the smoker. Hey, man, you know that stuff can kill you. Put the cigarette down. You, you can't smoke anymore. Next person they go to, the drinker. Hey, man, you could definitely have one or two less. Before our show, you would never go to the third person, which was your aunt who was 100 pounds overweight and say, you know, there is a way for you to get that weight off. You would have never done that. Mm -hmm. And because of this show, the conversation has changed the dinner table. In fact, you might go to the overweight person first and say, you know, that's, it's unhealthy. I've seen these people go on these shows. It's, it's amazing what they can do. You can, I can inspire you to do the same thing. You can do it, Grandma. You can do it, Aunt Sophie. Right? And I think that if that is the public service part of what we've done, then we've created a movement, which is what I was hoping for. What is, you know, amongst these 18 seasons, you know, are there standout examples of people that meant the most to you, their stories or, or you know, successes or failures that have that sort of rise above the fray as memorable for you? Sure. Lots. Right. So I have, there's one contestant, Pete Thomas, who every year he was in season two. So 16 seasons ago, every year on the date of his final weigh in, he sends me a picture and a video weigh in of himself to keep himself accountable. And he's kept the weight off. And he's kept the weight off. He's the only one out of all the contestants I've ever worked with that every year on the anniversary of his finale, he sends me a picture of himself and a picture of his feet on a scale. That is someone who's not going back. Mm -hmm. Guy lost 200 pounds. <coughs> he's never going back. <clears throat> but let's, so let's talk about the, the criticism, the controversy, the, uh, you know, there's another side of this whole thing that like gets a lot of press. Um, the recidivism, uh, the people that are putting the weight back on and the sort of harping and sniping about uh, theories about things that go on behind the scenes. You know, there's, a, you know, stuff about weight loss drugs and, and a lot of yelling and screaming and a lot of pressure for people to lose massive amounts of weight in an irresponsible amount of time driven by the pressure of primetime network television, only to then graduate from this experience and go back and, you know, put all the weight back on and all the talk about, you know, metabolic rate and the impact of extreme weight loss in a compressed period of time has on a person's ability to, you know, manage their weight going forward long term. Oh, I love this. This is the stuff that I could talk about all day. And here's why. One of the episodes of The Big Fat Truth, I bring five contestants from The Biggest Loser who gained all the weight back. And I bring him on the show. Mm -hmm. And Ryan's one of them, right? Ryan Benson's one Ryan. of them. Ryan. So I saw Ryan last night. He came to the screening of What the Health that no we hosted. Way. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and he came up to me and we were chatting a little bit after the screening. And, uh, and he's, tell, you know, he's, he's telling me his whole story. And I was familiar with it because I'd, I'd read about it and I knew he was part of the show. 
Um, and I was like, oh, I'm going to see JD tomorrow. And he's like, say hi to him for me. But so, you know what? I as soon as you said I saw Ryan Benson, my first thought was, I'm so proud that he went to an event with you about plant-based eating. Isn't that transformation? Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that amazing that this guy, he, he didn't just settle for, oh, I lost it, I gained it back, all right, I'm done. No, he's back in the game still trying to better himself, which so I love. He, and, and just for context, he was on like the first season or the second season? He was the first winner. First winner. Of the first season okay. of Biggest Loser. So, and OG. Right. And part of this big New York Times front page article, which I was on a run in Central Park, when up on my phone, the headline came in. Amazing that you can have an article about Biggest Loser and the effects of Biggest Loser and never even call the guy that created the show to talk to him. It's a big article. It's a long article. I read it this morning, reread it this morning. Amazing. And, and so here, here's this. my point with that article. And I think there's a lot of takeaway there and it's worth reading. Everybody should read it. Um, I wanted to get to the core of why the people that gained the weight back did gain it back. Was it metabolism or was it something else? I was interested. And to me, the Danny Cahill, the guy that the whole article is about, um, who I knew very well and who had, at the time had lost more weight than anyone in the history of the show, was a land surveyor. And he gained all his weight while driving from survey to survey, eating fast food in his car. He hated his job, hated his boss. It was an emotional uh, upheaval for him to go to work every day. Gained all the weight, over 400 pounds. Lost 200 pounds. Now follow me for a second. He then trades and makes his money on speaking engagements, standing next to the picture of his old self. Mm-hmm. Keeps the weight off for four years doing these speaking engagements, trading off of the success. Right. Well, there's accountability. There's there's external pressure there to maintain it because his livelihood is dependent upon it. Now, all the speaking engagements dry up because they want the new skinny person from The Biggest Loser. So what does he do? He goes back to the only thing he knows, land surveying at the same job. And the second he goes back to that job, what happens? He gains all the weight back. And my point is nobody, no doctor, no scientist in that article dealt with the emotional impact of a moment of my memory, my subconscious, which works on survival every millisecond of the day, goes back, click, 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 boom. What happened when I did this job? Oh, I ate my way to 400 pounds. The second you get back to the job, the same thing is going to happen. There's no running from it. There's no changing it. That is what's going to happen. So is that, is that a medical condition? No. It's an emotional condition. It's, yeah, I think it's two things. I think it, it speaks to the difference between external pressure and that internal willingness, like the, the, the difference between wanting it for yourself versus doing it for, you know, the, the sort of um, rewards that come with it. Like you don't when think it's pride. There. Come on. You don't think that when, you, when well, you're doing these speaking engagements, you don't think there's like, you're proud of yourself. Look, yeah, all these course. people are in this room because of, look at me. I did this. But when now, that goes away, you. There's, a, there's a psychological shift, yep. right? And how you feel about yep. yourself. Well, I don't have this anymore. People don't love me for that. And that sets in motion, you know, Identity another crisis. domino effect that is going in the wrong direction. So you tell me, is that metabolism or is that, hey, I started making bad choices. And so I wanted to explore that personally. Look, think about how many producers who created a, a, a worldwide phenomenon like this show would lean into bringing five people back who gained all of the weight back and who are an example of exactly what you don't want to show. I wanted them on the show to look them in the eye. For the new show. For the new show right. and look them in the eye and say, you tell me, is it your metabolism or is it your choices? 
What is it? And Ryan Benson looked me right in the eye, and I had not spoken to him since the end of first season. And he said to me, I won. I collected my $250,000 check and drove directly to my favorite hamburger place and never looked back. Mm-hmm. So it's choices. It's, it's the difference between him and Pete Thomas, who every day looks at himself in the mirror and says, I'm going to make sure I keep doing this today. I'm going to make the right decisions that I need to make. And it's hard if you've been, well, you can't weigh 175 pounds. If you went from 175 pounds to 400, right? Mm-hmm. And you went back to 175, you definitely have to work harder to stay 175 than I do. And my answer back is boo-hoo. You did the crime to get to 400. You did the work to get back to 175. It's your job to make sure it stays that way. And so if you have to work a little more and you can't have the double cappuccino at Starbucks, and you know, get over it. Right. But will you, I get that. You know, I'm with you on that. I think there is, like, let's, would you concede that creating an environment in which somebody is expected or pressured to lose that much weight in that short a period of time through some pretty, you know, severe restriction calorically and also, you know, a lot more exercise than they're used to creates a scenario that ultimately is doomed from the get-go. And, you know, I don't, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know the impact of like long-term metabolic rate as a result of that. There seems to be some science to suggest that there's validity to that. But I think just the unhealthy nature in and of itself of creating that kind of environment, like how, you know, what's your, how do you think about that? I guess if the article had shown both sides and compared 12 people who gained the weight back with 12 people who kept the weight off, I'd be more interested in the science. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you're saying like, just it's, it's, it's in, not necessarily inaccurate, but incomplete to point a finger at metabolic rate without taking into account and really evaluating all the environmental factors and psychological factors that came to play. Which is no equation. different than drug addiction, alcohol addiction. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you got out of drug rehab, did you go back to the same street corner with the same friends? No, you have to change everything. Exactly. And yeah. the people that well, do they say keep you only have to change one thing, everything, <laughs> right? It's and true. food is very similar. And my approach to you know, how I change my relationship with food is premised upon what I learned in, 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 uh, in rehab and in recovery about my relationship with drugs and alcohol with substance. You know, you have to keep eating, right? So it's qualitatively different in that regard. But there are certain principles about, uh, you know, the environment that you surround yourself with, the people, and all of those externalities that come into play that either move you forward towards recovery or towards you know being healthier or move you backwards and there is no the illusion is that there's a stasis point right where you can either you can go on cruise control because you got to figure it out no every thought that you entertain every conversation that you have every you know single thing that you put in your mouth is either moving you in a positive direction or in a negative direction it's always in flux and to be able to be mindful of that um, in every moment is the trick or the, you know, if you can, if you can master that, then I think you set yourself up for long-term success. Sure. And I'm looking to give people pictures of what success looks like so that they can reflect on that when they're deciding whether to pat themselves on the back for a job well done that day. So I'll give you another example. A girl in The Biggest Loser, our weigh-ins take four hours to shoot. Okay. It's a long time. Uh One of the girls in the gym, contestant, was swaying back and forth. 
So she would go into the shot, out of the shot, into the shot, out of the shot. So I go on my walkie-talkie and I say to the assistant director, go in and tell that girl, stop swaying back and forth. She's in and out of the shot. She needs to stand still. He goes over. They get in an argument that I can see on camera. He comes back. She's not going to stop. Sorry. I go, go tell her to stop swaying back and forth. What do you mean swaying back and forth? Like literally standing in place, just swaying back and uh-huh. forth. So lean one way, lean another. Lean one way, lean. So he goes back and they get into another argument. I go, that's it. I'm coming down there. I walk down to the gym. I pull her aside. Come here. I got 150 people on staff here. It takes four hours. It's late at night. Can you, can you just stop swaying back and forth? I'll never forget this moment as long as I live. She leaned into me in a whisper and she said, I've done the math. If I sway during this four hour weigh in, I lose 175 calories more than if I don't. I said, you go ahead and keep swaying, widen the shot out. And I guess what I'm telling you, why I'm telling you that is her level of commitment and a decision, instead of to sit in on a couch the rest of her life eating bonbons and doing what she was doing, a switch had been flipped. And once that switch is flipped, you, it's a, the power of the mind is so incredible. It can't be harnessed. And so you could, one argument could be like, hey, that's a little unhealthy. She, she's, she's even worrying about swaying. No, she's just refound herself and she's willing to do anything to be successful. And, and that I can admire. But you have to balance that against, I mean, there is some aspect of that that is perhaps unhealthy and might be setting her up for, uh, you know, a dysfunctional relationship with food going forward. For the rest of her life, the swaying, yes. In yeah, that moment in time. She's swaying all the time or she's overly focused on every single calorie. Absolutely. But in that moment in healthy. time, in a game, in a competitive situation, in doing something that's legal, moving, she's allowed to move. Um, I'm all for it. And the reason I'm all for it is there were so many switches in her life that had been turned off and so many things she wasn't doing. Was she the best mother, the best wife, the best friend? No, she wasn't the best her. And so you might have to go to an extreme in the other direction to then find the middle ground once it's over. But you need to taste both sides to be successful. Uh huh. And what about all these allegations of, uh, you know, treadmills in the sauna, you know, trying to drop weight like wrestlers and mysterious brown bags full of, you know, weight loss pills and things like, I mean, there's a lot of press about, a lot of bad press about these kinds of things sure, going I mean, on. If you, if you would have said, hey, um, if Bob or Jill, if one of their people wins, they get paid twice what the other gets. Then I would go, oh yeah, there's a reason to do stuff like that. But, but ratings are driven by, ex, you know, extreme extenuating circumstances and the drama that, that evolves from that. I think the ratings are driven by really great storytelling of emotional battles with transformation and overcoming obstacles in your life that you never thought you could overcome. To me, the, the best, highest ratings we've had were those moments and moments of failure, moments when someone says, I just can't do this anymore. So I never saw those things. And like any show, whether it's scripted or unscripted, <laughs> drama tends to follow success. So on the way up, everyone's pushing you up the mountain. The second you get there, the rocks start getting thrown and you got to put on a helmet. So I never saw that. I always felt that Bob and Jill had the right priorities set, that they wanted people to transform. People like Dolved and Jen, they really <laughs> want change for people. And so all the stuff that I saw was very positive. Was it competitive? Yeah. But that's why I make extreme weight loss too. Mm-hmm. Non-competitive show, single contestant, follow them for a whole year. 
I got tired of people saying, oh, but can you do it at home? Ah, sure, in a Malibu mansion with trainers, you know, food given to you. So we did another show, Extreme Weight Loss, 500-pound people doing it at home alone for a year. So mm-hmm. we tried to spread the idea when anyone would throw stones, we try to create something else to show that it could be done. Now, of course, then they say, oh, yeah, but working out five hours a day and eating only healthy, you know, f- food and animal protein. Well, I, I can't do that. So that's why I came up with another way to do it. It's like, hey, you don't even have to exercise. You can just really watch what you eat and look at the results. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So do you look at the big fat truth as, do you, do you perceive it as somewhat on some level like redemptive from the biggest loser? Evolutionary is okay. how I, I look at it. A little more evolutionary that I love the biggest loser. I love what we accomplished. I love the brand. I love everything that we like, did. Looking back on it, you wouldn't change any of those extreme circumstances? I, hmm. Would I change any? I, I wouldn't. No, because I think that the amount of people we helped even outside the brand far outweigh the few moments where someone could take it too far. You know, look, even in education, people take it too far. They got their kids studying morning, noon, right? Seven days a week till midnight every What's the advantage of that? There is nothing in society that is not taken to an extreme. Look, hey, look at you, Rich. Took it to an extreme, right? Five Ironmans in five days on five islands, the unthinkable. Did you take it too far? Was that healthy to eat 50, you know, almond butter sandwiches and bananas a day? And that, you know, you know what I mean? So I can admire what you did and then add it to my life. And and so what I do is I say, man, I'm going on a 10 mile run. If Rich could do five Ironmans in five days on five islands, this runs nothing. So that inspiration of you going too far actually encouraged me to do something that was good. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks. And, and, and I get that. And, and kind of the way that I message it is similar to that. I don't expect, you know, somebody hearing my story to go out and mimic exactly what I'm doing, but hopefully it will recalibrate how they think about fitness and food and they can meet me, you know, at the 15% mark. You know what I mean? Because if I could do it this far, then maybe, you know, you can, you can like, you know, inch yourself forward in a way that perhaps before hearing that story, you might not have thought possible for yourself. You're the glossy and, trophy. I just want to rub up next to it. But I'm, you know, like, but I'm also going to say that I don't know that doing five Ironmans in a week on five islands is a healthy thing. I don't know that that's going to make me live longer. But what did it do? But, it created a lightning rod for you to get your message and your movement out right. there. And so doing extreme things as a way to, as like an attention grab, or that's that has a negative connotation, but as a as a way of you know putting your imprimatur on on the world and saying this is possible. And I'll and I'll put another thing out to you. The New York Times once called me very aggressively on the phone, angry. We went to your website and do you know what we found? And I said, No. What did you find? 
only half the people on your website kept the weight off from the finale and are still at the current weight. What do you have to say about that? So here's what I, I would say about that. If half of America that's obese lost all the weight they needed to become healthy and stayed at that weight, we would save billions of dollars a year in healthcare and people would live longer and at a better quality of life. Is there something wrong with that? Phone call over. Do you feel like you have some responsibility to create kind of a, a little bit of an outpatient model for these people once they depart the show and suddenly they're just back to their lives without, you know, people buzzing around them all the time, sure. you know, being of assistance to this goal, right? Like I suddenly, I suddenly yeah. they're just, they're, they're freewheeling on their own, right? Like you get out of rehab and you can go to a 12-step program and continue to, you know, maintain your sobriety. But if you're just going home after the biggest loser and you're going back into your life, you're armed with whatever you learned as a result of that experience, but you don't have the infrastructure to, you know, sort of hold you accountable. Like right. you have to create that for yourself. And one right? day your four kids are going to leave the nest and they're going to be on their own too. And <laughs> so the, you don't feel any obligation well, like you. Hopefully the basis of information that you gave them and that foundation, that pure foundation of knowledge and being a good person, right, that you gave them is going to pay dividends and they're going to use that later. Mm -hmm. And if you're really wanting to be successful and you soak up everything and you get my email and you have my phone number, and you stay in touch with Bob and Jillian, and you utilize all the resources of the dietitians and the nutritionists and the doctors, and, and you keep all that, that is a quiver with a thousand arrows in it that you can reach for at any moment. Or you can gain the weight back and blame that you didn't have an after-school program that gave you what you needed. And so the Pete Thomases who send me a picture of themselves, people who reach out by email regular to me that need help, we're there for them. And so mm -hmm. I, I would argue that the people who really want to stay off the drugs and off the alcohol and off the food and live healthy lifestyles, they have the tools to know what they need to do it and they don't blame. They're not um, victims. They actually take control of their life and they make decisions that put them in a, in a place to be successful. Right. I, I get that. I get that. Do you, is there going to be, is there another uh, season of Biggest Loser coming up? Not currently. No. So, okay. So that, is that over now? I would say as for right now, it, it definitely is. And, and Extreme Weight Loss had its last season last summer as well. I think that the, the notion of an overweight person in a gym with a trainer yelling at them is a little long in the tooth. Mm -hmm. And that the reinvention of that is necessary. Just like for a while, a sitcom was dead. And then Modern Family brought it back, mm -hmm. right? And all of a sudden, then the sitcom's alive again. Just like the drama, just like any genre of television, um, it has its pendulum that swings both ways. And I think in this specific genre of reality, I think it needs um, a little roadside uh, CPR. Right. Do you think back on that experience and wish that you could have leveraged some of the information that you have now about plant-based nutrition into that equation, or would that not have been possible? I don't know if it was the right time or place. I think that the movement has picked up so much steam in the last three or four years, and I don't know if it's just because I'm involved in it, so I'm more aware of it, but it certainly feels a lot more mainstream that you can walk into any grocery store and see Ripple milk and right and every everything mm -hmm. is driven by uh, plant mil plant based milk nut based this like so it seems to be more on the tip of people's tongue maybe that's L A and New York and I'm not in Cleveland so I don't know 
but it certainly feels like it's it's becoming more mainstream. I think that would have been ahead of its time. I think mm-hmm. we were ahead of our time then in dealing with people in the emotional side of weight loss. Hey, no one did that. Now it is actually the way into weight loss. Now they start with the emotional decision before they even start with food. So there's been so many positives that have come out of a brand as big as The Biggest Loser that for me, I, you know, I don't think that will ever be equaled again, much like I don't think there'll ever be another American Idol. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know it, the, it, in that genre, it, it, was a, uh, it was the only one of its kind. How did you originally find Bob and Jillian? Yeah, it's crazy, right? Because there's so many trainers and they all thought they were great. And how do you know which one to choose? And um, I went for against type. And what I mean by that is Jillian was acted more like the guy, angry, yeah, yelling, she's screaming. She's super alpha. Right. And, but she's hot. And you're like, okay, well, that, that's against type. And Bob was tatted up and looked like he might rob you, but at the, and he just wanted he's to hug like you. like a sweet guy. Yeah. yeah. So having opposites like that, to me, always works in television. And I always look for things that are against type. Mm-hmm. It didn't hurt that Bob had a Saturday morning uh, class, a treadmill class that was packed. You had to sign in an hour before. And in Hollywood, right? I mean, you right. know, only the good ones are going to survive like that. By the way, to his credit, he still teaches that Saturday morning class. Oh, does he really? 15 years later, it's still something he does, which is the roots. And so when you think about people that, to their core, really want to help people change their life. Bob used to show up on set with a car that would break down every week. He had no money. He had nothing. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to help people. And Bob and Jillian moved into that house the first year and lived for six months 24 hours a day with these people, helping them to change their life. So the core of our belief system, what we all want, is for people to be happier. It's actually that simple. We just want people to be happier and live a better life. That's it. So Bob had uh, flirted with being plant-based. I think it must have been 2008, I think, maybe. Around that time, 2008, 2009. It was not only plant-based, but it was also very small portions of Mm -hmm. of plant-based things as well. Yeah, so I knew, and it, it kind of made news because he was, you know, playing around with that and and seemed to be somewhat of an evangelist of it for a, sh- a brief period of time. And then he kind of moved away from it and- Paleo. Yeah, he went paleo mm-hmm. and it made a lot of news. Maybe, what was it, a month ago, about a couple of weeks ago when yep. he had a heart attack at age 51, right? So have, which is awful, you know, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Have you, and he was- I guess he was unconscious for like two yeah. days or something like well, that. We, so it was like a spoken. significant, yeah. Like, so yeah. I wanted to know, like, how is he doing? And have first you of all, to him? I love me some Bob Harper, right? I mean, this guy, he's the ultimate. And what I give him credit for is he tries everything. He tries plant-based, tries paleo, tries all different exercises, tries CrossFit, tries no weights, tries all body movements. He wants to know and be in touch with everything that's out there. And he does become very evangelical about the thing that he's in in that moment. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain beauty to that. He doesn't just try it. He dives in and it becomes the flavor gum he chews, right? And everything. <laughs> he's into it. And I love that about him. That kind of passion you can't teach. Um, that's a beautiful thing. I, I don't, I'm not a fan of CrossFit. I love the community that CrossFit creates. I don't like that in a very fatigued state to have giant heavy weight on someone who's 50 years old, snatching it up over their head and, and you know, in other ways that seems more violent than beautiful is, uh, is, a, is a thing that you need at that age. I just, I, I just don't believe it. I don't see it. Mm-hmm. He is a CrossFit diehard guy. Um, and so that's a big part of his life. And that, as, and the combination with paleo, combination of heart disease that runs in his family, who knows if those were factors 
you know, that that all got involved together in this in the same way. I don't know. Um, none of us will ever know. But um, if anyone is going to overcome it and continue to be healthy and find the best way to be healthy, it'll be Bob. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think in the press release that I saw, you know, he was attributing his sort of genetic predisposition to what had occurred because his mom had suffered a heart attack. Although I yes. believe she, her heart attack was when she was like in her 70s, right? I don't know so, when it was, but his mom definitely did have a heart right. attack. And as somebody who now, you know, we spoke at the outset of this podcast about the sort of disease prevention and, and reversal aspects of eating a plant-based diet, do you feel like, you, you know, like when you talk to Bob, are you like, come on, man, like get back on the plan here? Compelled, absolutely compelled to say, hey, again, genetics load the, load the gun, decisions pull the trigger. What are you doing? We got to make good decisions. Bob's a really smart guy. I guarantee you he's already done the research. And if he hasn't already gone plant-based, my guess is, is he doesn't need me to tell him. I think he knows enough about the research and, and medical support that's out there um, to know what he needs to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he's a smart guy. And even people like Jillian who you know sort of are open to everything, try everything, look at everything. I think she understands the importance and, and the basis of it as well. I don't think people are gonna take it to the level that you and I do. I think they use the more 80-20 rule you know, it's like, okay, well, if I have a four ounce piece of meat and I surround it with a gigantic plate of vegetables, ah, that's just as good. And it is a good step. That is a step in the right direction. But I think you and I have taken it to a different level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about What the Health, the new movie by the guys who made Cowspiracy. And they addressed that kind of 80-20 rule in this movie. You got to check it out. Man. I can't you gotta, wait. Yeah, you got to watch this movie. Um, it does an amazing job of, of advocating that, that position of why why going all, all whole hog and all the way in really is you know an important aspect Look, of it. Look, there's so many ways to think about this. Like my mom has stage four pancreatic cancer. I said, mom, now's the time. You've got to go plant-based. Please, I'm begging you. Look, I'll help you. I'll make the food, whatever you need me to do. And she said, if ever there was a time to eat a donut, now is it. So <laughs> what can you do with that? You, you say, I love you. Uh-huh. And where do you want me to go get you the donut? Mm-hmm. And so everybody's at a different stage of their life in their needs and their wants, what they're comfortable with, what they're not comfortable with. And so all guys like you and I can do is say, hey, here's what I'm doing. And by the way, what we're doing is extreme, right? So I don't expect anybody to get all the way there to where my family is. We go out to dinner, my wife and I, people won't even order until we've ordered our food. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make it uncomfortable for anybody, but it is something I'm extremely passionate about. This is how I live my life. When I do the show, I invite the contestants over. We make them smoothies in my house. I work out with them. I show them how to live their life and how to eat. And I do it by example. And I think that's the best that you and I can do. Mm-hmm. So the new show, uh, you've got these contestants and what is the kind of uh, the, the through line? You know, how are you organizing it like episode by episode? Like how are you teaching these people and what are the paces that you're putting them through? Right. Well, the, the show, the basis of the show is I think there are a lot of unsung heroes in America who are unappreciated. So and I, I want to deal with them one group at a time. A lot of them, they pick a job, guarantees just by the job they pick, they're going to be overweight. So take a night nurse, for example, nine times more likely to be overweight than the average population. Yet they stand next to skinny doctors all the time. 
because they're up all night and they're off their rhythm or off what is their the rhythm up all night and it even goes down to the lighting it goes down to switching from nights three days a week to days when you're not working right the switching back and forth and when you and they they live seven years less than the average population as well these are health professionals mm. they know better than anyone why is it that there's i go to the hospital to visit my mother i'm stressed out i'm there 12 hours in a room we just stare at each other for the 12 hours why is it there's not one hospital in America that has a gym for patients' families that come in that need to go downstairs and blow off a little steam for 45 minutes, work out, get a healthy smoothie, shower, and go back up to the room, like endorphins running, smiling, to show some love to their family? You'd think, right? Instead, there's McDonald's. Instead, it's worse, right? It's not only McDonald's. What comes up in the elevator? All the patients that they got well, that bring donuts and all the rest of the garbage to thank them. Mm -hmm. There should be someone down at the bottom of the elevator, doesn't even allow that stuff to go in the elevator. This is a place of health. That, and there's nothing healthy about it. Do you know where the most Coca-Cola is sold in America? Hospitals. Is that true? That is a true fact. That is shocking. More Coca-Cola sold in hospitals than anywhere on the planet. You start adding all of those things up. That's a problem as health professionals, as health organizations and corporations, they should make a decision to make sure that health means health everywhere. McDonald's aren't in cafeterias. Fried food is not in cafeterias. Night nurses, guess what? All the food's already closed down, done. Mm -hmm. They can't even get food. They have to order Thai food from some place in the middle of the night with some guy coming trying to get up the elevator. So what do you think they're gonna get? It's gonna be terrible for them. Right. There's no system set up where they can put their order in the day before and the cafeteria, when it closes, could leave it in the cooler for them, and it could be a healthy salad or something that you and I were, would eat. It seems like the system's so broken, and there's so many obvious, easy fixes. But follow the money. Yeah, you got to follow the money and also appreciate the fact that even a conversation about nutrition with respect to a treatment protocol for a patient in an acute situation in a hospital isn't really even on the radar, or if it is, it's only recently that that has become something to even talk about. Very new information that a friend of mine's father who has cancer went to interview at Cedars-Sinai, USC, and UCLA at all the hospitals. First thing all three oncologists said, you need to go on a plant-based diet immediately. Now, that is earth-shattering news. Yeah. Yet, they don't serve that food in the very hospitals that they work <laughs> right. in. It's Salisbury steak and jello. I talked to a doctor who shall go nameless at Cedar sinai who told me the only thing that matters. He said, eh, I like this. Meat people don't agree with the plant people and vice versa. But one thing everybody can agree on. Sugar, when I inject sugar into a tumor in a Petri dish, I can watch the cancer cells multiply when I put sugar in there. It's the only thing I can put in there when that happens. And we know that exercise helps a lot. So I say to him, well, what do you do? You're the, one of the greatest researchers at Cedars-Sinai in health and cancer. What do you do? And the quote he gave me was, I have a sweet tooth and I don't like to exercise. Mm -hmm. I said, well, if you're not going to do it with everything that you know, you're not doing it. How do you expect your patients to do it? And he said, well, I have disease on my side. What does that mean? I asked him the same thing. Oh, because the, the patients have disease, so they're, they're more motivated. They're compliant because they're, they're going to die. So why do you got to wait till that point? I, I just, to me, it baffles my mind. It goes mind. back to psychology. Yep. You know, it's so complicated. But that's the doctor that's, give, that's messaging out to the patient. 
waiting for disease to become compliant. The doctor doesn't even do the things he knows would help. Mm-hmm. So how do you get a regular person to do it? Right. And then backing up from that, when you look at, you said, follow the money, the, the extent to which you know, big food companies are embedded into the hospital system and the amount of money that's made on those contracts is massive. And there are you know, powerful lobbying groups, et cetera, that have a lot to say about how that goes down. And Someone so, should do a study on how much they make on soda versus how much they make on beds in the hospital. I would almost bet you they make more on soda. That would be that would be an amazing study. I would almost bet. But a lot of that soda's got to be people in the waiting room. Sure. You know? They shouldn't be drinking it either. Mm-hmm. Again, if you walk into a hospital, it should be a picture of health. That's what it's about. Nursing people back to health, right? And the people that visit should see that written on everyone's faces. How about getting to the root cause of what's causing the problems that deliver people to the hospital in the first place, as opposed to treating the symptoms with pharmaceuticals? Sure. Well, Foodicin, last time I checked, is not reimbursable. That's the problem. That's a problem. You get someone on insulin, mm-hmm. every two months they got to come back to get that checked out to make sure it's working properly. Tell somebody to eat more broccoli, they never come back because they won't need to. And then what? Then the whole system breaks down. It's beginning to shift, though. You know, I think uh, you're seeing um, people are waking up to this and they want more from their medical practitioners. And so clinics are popping up that are about preventative care, about functional medicine. You know, people like, you know, Robert Osfeld, he's no. a doctor in the Bronx. I've had him on the, on the podcast. He's created a whole program in this, you know, underprivileged section of New York where diabetes rates are through the roof. He brings them in, he gets them on a plant-based diet, and there's all this very significant kind of outpatient care to keep people on track, you know, and, and, and that cuts, that's at odds with the typical system of you get 15 minutes and you diagnose and you prescribe and you get them out the door and that revolving door kind of thing. You have to create a new model that on some level has to be financially, economically viable. Um, not with the margins that you're getting in the old system, but in a way that's actually getting at the cause of what's getting people sick and getting them on preventative measures that are going to put them on a healthy trajectory. The way so, to do that is to help somebody's pocketbook. And what I mean yeah, by that it has is to start, be f- start with something simple. What if, think about how gyms make their money. They make their money with people who are asleep at the wheel. I give you my membership. You automatically charge me every month. I feel guilty and shame because I don't go. I don't cancel my membership, thank God, because they have 10,000 members, and if they all showed up on the same day, place would shut down because of the mm-hmm. fire code. What if you did the reverse? What if you had a gym that said, hey, it's $250 a month, but if you swipe your card five times and come, it's half off. We'll refund you half the money. Right, give them the money, their money back when they use it. The more you use, the less it costs. To me, that's making a statement. That's saying, hey, I care about your health. I don't care about the fact that all you're doing is you're paying me a monthly sum and you're asleep at the wheel and you don't come in. So how would that work in a medical context? You pay a doctor a lump sum and then when you make progress, he gives you your money back? Absolutely. (laughs) The better you do, the more you're rewarded. In Uh the end, that's the only way to get people to be compliant. For instance, uh, I had an uncle say to me, ah, I'm getting ready to go on vacation. I need to lose 10 pounds quick. How do I do it? I go, easiest thing in the world. He goes, how? Cut me a check for five grand. He said, what are you talking about? I said, you lose the 10 pounds before your vacation, I give you the check right back. Mm -hmm. You don't, I'm taking my family on a vacation that weekend. 
And then I saw the light bulb go off in his eye. He's like, oh, I need to have skin in the game. I need to have something that I'm afraid of losing to make sure that I do what I'm supposed to. But that's also a quick fix, right? If you wanna get somebody to really change how they think about themselves long-term, like really adapt their lifestyle to new patterns that are gonna serve them better, um, it's gonna take more than that. Because yeah, as soon as he wins that bet, he's gonna go back to whatever he was doing. There's, he no, there's no negative external pressure He anymore. feels better, he looks better in the mirror, he's happier. He doesn't get up. He's not in pain when he gets up. His joints don't hurt. And he's like, this feels pretty good. Yeah, I'll keep this up a little longer. That's what I'm hoping for. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping it's somewhere along the way, click. Oh, wait a second. I like this. And so if I can get somebody to, to that place and even one out of two end up doing that, it's a win. Do you want to lead people, show them what success tastes like. And then once they taste it, they always want more. The promised land though, I think, has to do with the mental shift from somebody who thinks of themselves as a fat person, as a 400 pound person, to embracing the idea that they are something else, right? Well, that's two like different fundamentally. things. One is losing 10 pounds. The other is a 400 pound person, which guaranteed 100% of the time there's darkness. That's not, hey, I really like pizza and French fries. So you're right. A 400 pound person is com a completely different um, structure that needs to be unwrapped and figured out. Right. And, and that's a trickier puzzle. No doubt about it, but it's so doable. It is so doable. I had a 400 pound guy. I have everybody write down three victories a day that are very small. And I never put that on the show. It's a private thing that we do. And, uh, one guy wrote down like four days into it. I tried today, even though no one was looking now, on its surface, that's the whole game. That's right? most, the ball most game. people would have read that and not thought anything about it. It brought tears to my eyes. And because here's why, where else wasn't he trying when no one was looking? As a husband, as a father, as a worker, as a friend. Now he just, the, the button was flipped in four days. He tried when no one was looking and he saw the value in that. So that goes way beyond what the scale says. Because that's somebody who's doing it for themselves, not for any other reason. Absolutely. And, and that is transformation. That's where you have to get, that's where you have to drive people towards. And that was a Biggest Loser contestant. So we can say, hey, yeah, are there people that push the boundaries on the Biggest Loser? Yeah, people push the boundaries and everything, right? Uh, you're, first it was send someone around the world. Next thing you know, it sends someone to the moon. Next thing you know, it sends someone to Mars. Next thing you know, it's... Well, there's got to be an, an alien somewhere, right? We're always pushing the boundaries. But there are also people that just have that small moment of, wow, I tried when no one was looking that are, to me, uh, just as important and, uh, and need to be recognized in the same way. Mm -hmm. What have you learned from the biggest loser? Like, what are the kind of tools and tactics that have worked that are that you're applying in this new show and what hasn't worked that you've had to change? Well, the thing that always works, and it doesn't have to be with weight loss, is the body's no match for the power of the mind. For sure, look at you. How many times did your body tell you, uh, what, what are you doing, just stop? Mm -hmm. And your mind said, uh-uh, you're not stopping. No matter what, you're not stopping. The beast wraps you up and tells you you're done. And your mind goes, nope, I'm not done. I needed a friend on this run. Thanks, beast. Go ahead. You can join me. That is something you can't teach somebody, right? That's something you, you, you have to have inside you. And so I, I believe that training people to work the power of the mind 
is the greatest asset you can have. And, and how do you not do just that? In like, what loss. is the, how do you, what's the way in for you? Like, how do you approach that? Well, believing you can do it and believing that you're worth it. And those two things may sound like a fortune cookie, but they're not. There are more people walking around on the planet today who don't think they're worth having. I didn't deserve that guy. I don't deserve this car. They get comfortable with taking shots in the face. And I teach people how to throw punches, not how to take them. But to get to that point, you have to delve deep into that pain, right? And push that button and get it exposed, bring it into the light and have people wrestle with it, right? People have exposed secrets that they've had for 30, 40 years to me in under five minutes. So it's getting a trust with them and looking them in the eye and not accepting their bullshit. So when you say, hey, well, why are you 300 pounds? Oh, I just, I just love food. I love, no, that's not it. Try again. Don't tell me that's not it. I told you I love food. I love barbecue sauce. I love ice cream. I, no, that's not it. And really not accepting their bullshit, which everyone in their life does accept. And then breaking through that and having them admit what it really is. And once they admit what it really is, I just get out of the way and the weight falls off of them. Mm -hmm. So that tactic's never going to be different. It's no different than with, with my son as well when he comes home with a problem from school. It's three easy steps to accomplish anything. First, identify the problem. Hey, I'm overweight. I'm losing uh, you know, uh, all these things in my life I can't do anymore. Gosh, it's, it's terrible. I'm going to die at a young age. Number two, make a list, what you need to do. Oh, I need to move more. I need to eat better, not rocket science. In the case of a kid, it's usually I need to do my homework. I need to study for the test, right? Number three, it's the only step nobody gets to. It's the only step that matters. And so if anyone's looking for this giant secret that I have on step number three, there isn't one. Step number three is go do it. Mm -hmm. Stop talking about it and actually do something. But what is the barrier that prevents people from the doing? That activation. There's, the, there's that, you know, there's the huge, uh, I talk about this all the time, but it's like the crevasse between the intellectual understanding and the actual action, right? Sure. You can totally understand, yeah, I, I need to stop doing all these things. But what is it that activates people and motivates them and gets them moving? For the people I work with, activation is about being worth it. It's about feeling like you're worth it, feeling like you matter, feeling like someone wants to hear you, feeling like somebody loves you. And, and that's where I come in. And if you, again, if you would have told me before I did these shows, I was going to be that guy, I would have told you you were crazy. <laughs> and I, I've, I've always been a passionate guy. I've always loved to solve problems, but I was a producer. Uh, you know, I, I have zero, I don't even have a college degree. I have zero background in nutrition, zero background in exercise physiology. I got zero background in, in all of this stuff. So why is it that I can get more weight off of people than the professionals? Because I'm dealing with something they're not. That, that's the game. You don't need to go somewhere to get advice on how to eat better. You know what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. It's all the emotional stuff that you need to fix. And when you do the emotional work, the benefits are massive. And so every show, in my opinion, that I've done all starts at the same exact entry point. And that's the emotional decision of why food gives you more pleasure than anything else in life. So if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, you know what, I just, I, I rubber band diet. I'm okay for a while. I go back, I, I lose weight, I put it back on. Uh, and maybe I'm not looking at that emotional component and I'm ready to look at it, but you know, I'm not going to be on a TV show and JD's not available to me. Like what, what should I do? You just described my book. 
So in the book, I make you a contestant because not everybody does want to expose their life. I give the same questionnaire I give to the contestants to fill out. I ask you to make a tape of yourself as if you were going to be on. Because when you ask your friends, hey, why do you think I'm fat? And you really want to know, they will tell you. When you ask your kids, do you think mommy's fat? They'll be honest with you and they'll tell you. And you need to hear these things. You know, you can't hide behind the 40 pairs of shoes you have in your closet, hoping everyone's going to look at your feet and not your face. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way. Everyone knows. Everyone knows what you feel like inside. Everyone is aware of it. And you need to actually ask the questions. And I would argue that you need to plant the flag in the sand that says, this year I'm going to do X. Make it public. The more public you make it, the more likely you are to be successful. Get other people involved. People want to help. That's what I think people think no one wants to get involved in their life. Ask for help. People want to help you and they will support you. If you want to just go out with the same friends and have ribs, french fries, and ice cream, then that's what's going to happen. You have to change some of those friends if they won't get on board. You have to really want to change something in your life to be successful. Like anyone, not just weight loss, Mm -hmm. right? You want to make more money? What are you going to do? Work harder or work less? I also think that we have to be honest about what's really going on. I mean, nobody wants to fat shame. You know, nobody wants to be uh, somebody pointing fingers and blaming and and sort of exploiting people that are overweight. But at the same time, we have to recognize and talk about the fact that we have an obesity you know epidemic right now that's leading to all of these chronic illnesses that are killing people unnecessarily. And to just normalize it is not okay either. Right. To just say, well, this is, you know, it's like you look around like 70 percent of people are obese or overweight. And we're just supposed to sort of accept this as the new normal. And we're not allowed to, like, talk about the fact that, you know, maybe this isn't the best way to go. I had to defend it. The night before Biggest Loser came out in 2004, the Fat Women's Association of America, and I'm not exaggerating, went to Entertainment Tonight, who asked me to come on the show and defend the fat shaming that the TV show Biggest Loser was going to you know, be involved with. And I said, first of all, nobody has seen a frame of the show. So I don't understand how people could be so unhappy or so upset. So I agreed to go on. Uh, people were very nervous at the network about me going on the show. I went on. Um, the uh, two women that represented the association were over 300 pounds, balding, did not look healthy. Um, they said, how dare you make a show? These are the last people on earth. You know, that leave them alone. Um, they're not bothering you. And there are plenty of overweight people who are overweight and happy. Why can't you leave them alone? And just like every good TV show, the camera cuts to me on an extreme close-up. The red light goes on and the host says, well, what do you have to say about people who are overweight and happy? And I look right in the camera and I said the following. I'm looking for people who are overweight and unhappy. And I think there's millions of them. So if you're overweight and happy, fine. Of course, off camera, I would argue they're not happy. They're acting like they're happy, but they're not. There are millions of people who are unhappy because they're overweight. Why don't we try to help those people? Why do we have to ignore it? Because there are some who claim that they're overweight and happy. I've never met one. I've never met an overweight person who in less than five minutes, I couldn't have in my arms in a puddle of tears Mm. about how they're not really happy. It's just a show. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a huge problem, man. Right? Yeah. And you're, and you're not going to eat your way out of it. 
And normalizing it is not the solution either. No. And then what happens is it's a multi-generational problem of what people refer to as the fat gene, which I refer to as the bad decisions gene. And so you're now educating young kids how you eat. And then they do it to their family. Now you've got multiple generations of people who are unhealthy, taxing the healthcare system, and more importantly, not living the best life they can live. And so, and there's not major changes that need to happen to help those people. You just have to educate them. Right. The progeny feel disempowered. They feel like they're just destined to be overweight because, you know, their forebearers are as well, their parents, their grandparents, their uncles, their aunts. Uh, but they're being deprived of an alternative perspective on that. And they think that the, you know, uh, $1 hamburger at a fast food restaurant feeds their family and at least their family doesn't go to bed hungry. But they don't realize that if they buy the appropriate things, vegetables and veggie broth, and they can make soups and uh, lentils and quinoa, and that it's actually in the long run serves more meals than if they just go get the salty, you know, calorically dense hamburger that's going to kill them at a young age. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we got to wrap this up, but maybe uh, a good place to kind of end it is to leave people with some suggestions for how they can embark on a more plant-centric, plant-based diet if the, they're flirting yeah. with it. I mean, look, the best way to go uh, plants is to listen to you because that, that's inspiring to me. I'd agree with that. And um, so I, that, that would be <laughs> no. the number one rule. That if they can't listen to you or they can't listen to you all the time, um, I would say start very simple. And so the way we started is we gave each one of our kids $5 and we went to the farmer's market and said, you can buy whatever you want with it. Um, that's empowering for a kid. And so they went and bought what they wanted. And that made them want to eat it. Mm -hmm. And it made them want to go back again. Yeah, because then they're, they're invested in it. They have ownership. The other thing is when kids are young, and by young, I mean under eight years old, if you grow one green bean in a little pot in your backyard, they will eat a whole bowl because they think they grew them all. So encourage them to watch a little plant grow and watch that green bean or that tomato or right to see it grow and then have them pull it off the little tree and bring it inside and then cut it into 20 tomatoes, right, or 20 green beans, and it, it shows them the process of where food comes from. And once they understand that, they also have ownership in that part of it as well. That's huge, you know, because then they're also fully connected to the entire, you know, the entire uh, process of where the food comes from in a really powerful and potent way in a culture in which we're completely disconnected from that. Which I think is exciting for kids. Yeah. And then... <laughs> <clears throat> And then lastly, I would argue that anything that seems overwhelming is. And so when you're going from a diet of eating whatever you want to completely restricting yourself of everything, it's very hard to sustain. And so what I would do is I would make one change a week. And when you start stacking those decisions on top of each other, after a month, you got four good decisions. Mm -hmm. After two months, you got, you got eight. And so the easiest way to do it would be start with one meal a day that you're going to go all plant-based. Then cut soda out. Then cut, right? And once you start right. doing those, <clears throat> once you start doing that and getting one decision stacked up on another, then success becomes easier. And if you slip up, and you probably will because you're a human being, you're part of the human race, 
to not flog yourself and use that as an argument for why you can't do it or why it's too hard. Instead, to just look at it as a learning experience and, and think about what led you to that bad decision and try to do better in your next decision as opposed to throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, you know, Rich, hey, I've, I've sat there with a sleeve of Thin Mint cookies from the Girl Scouts and eaten the entire thing. The difference is the very next meal I eat is perfect. And so if you're going to bang your head against the wall and it hurts, the craziest thing to do would be three hours later bang to bang it again. against the wall right. again. And you're building up scar tissue. And then the next three hours, you do it again. And, but if you back off and just let your head heal, right, chances are you'll be fine. So if there's a slip up every now and then, like you said, you can't beat yourself up. We're all human beings. And you let a little life creep in in those moments and laugh about it. And I think that finding the joy in a lot of the sadness that we all have um, would make life easier for everybody. That shame is the thing that I have the biggest problem with in what I do. Shame is uh, a killer. And when you get shame, you're in a room alone with the ice cream. And so if you can eliminate shame, chances are you could be success. And the process to eliminating shame is to shine a light on it. You got to bring it out into the open. I tell people, you're, eating, you're mowing down a bag of potato chips, get someone on the phone. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <clears throat> hey, I'm mowing down a bag of potato chips. Somebody help me quick. Which is the last thing you want to do, but that's the key to transcending it. Yeah, because when you get rid of that shame, it's very empowering. Then instead of being the, uh, the, the guy who the strings are getting pulled on, you become the puppeteer and you're pulling the strings. And that feels good. All right, man. I think we did it. Yeah. Now it's time to go for a run. How do you feel? <laughs> you good? I feel good. I feel like I'm ready uh, for you're some all more fired. plants. You're all fired up. Let's go. Awesome. So uh, The Big Fat Truth, the book, you can get it on Amazon. Use the uh, banner ad at richroll.com to purchase that. Check it out. And the TV show sometime in May. We're yep, not quite sure on, yet. Uh, Z Living. You can go to zliving.com right, right now and there's information about the show on oh, there. Oh, cool. Zliving.com. Check it out. Uh, starring the great Dr. Michael Greger. Of course, our and favorite. And the great Rich Roll. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was, thank you for having me on the show for one day. That was super fun. And uh, you guys are like the, the Michael Jordan of this world for me. So to have a guy like you and Greg are on the show, I'm like a little kid in a candy store. Oh, uh, Gregor's the star. Come on. You know, I don't I know, came man. In, You're I came in there. to, to give, give a few pats on the back. Your book but, is uh, right next to his on my desk. Yeah, cool, man. Well, uh, great talking to you, dude. Yeah, you too. All right. Thanks, man. Peace plants. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I really dug talking to JD. I really like that guy. I think he's a good dude. I'm excited about his new TV show. Once again, The Big Fat Truth. It's premiering Sunday, June 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on Z Living. So check your local cable provider to find out what channel number that is. Hey, do you guys want to come to Ireland with us? July 24 through 31. We're going to this incredible manor called Bally Valane for Plant Power Ireland. It's like this crazy James Bond-like estate on 90 acres in the Irish countryside. Uh, it's a really beautiful place. We scouted it last year. I'm really excited to go there. Uh, we're going to be doing stuff with the Happy Pear Lads. Remember those guys from the podcast? It's going to be really cool. Seven days of transformation with Julie and I. Uh, we're going to cook. We're going to eat. We're going to run. We're going to meditate. We're going to do tea ceremony. We're going to do some pretty intensive workshops on relationships and creativity and nutrition. There's going to be Ayurvedic treatments. We got, we got glamping tents. It's going to be really fun, also intense. It's all designed to help you unlock your best self and transform your life wholesale. So if you think this is something for you, you can learn more at ourplantpowerworld.com. Uh, if you'd like to support this show and my work, share it with your friends. 
leave a review on iTunes, uh, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast content. We have a Patreon. Thank you so much to everybody who has contributed financially to my work. I really appreciate that. Uh, and that's it. Also, if you'd like to receive a free weekly email from me, I send one out every Thursday. It's called Roll Call. It's just got some tips, some tools, some resources that I came across over the course of the week. Usually uh, an article I read, a documentary I watched, or a podcast I listened to, the book that I'm reading, blah, blah, blah. Things that you know have inspired me, that I got something out of, that I found useful. I'm never going to spam you. There's no affiliate links in this. It's totally free. Uh, and I'm enjoying uh, sharing this with you guys, and you guys seem to be enjoying it on your end. So if you want in on that, just throw your email in one of those email boxes on my website at richroll.com, where you will also find signed copies of Finding Ultra, as well as the Plant Power Way. we got t-shirts, tech tees, and other kind of merch and swags. Schwags. Is it swag? It's swag, right? Uh, I want to thank today's sponsors, Harry's, a superior shave at an affordable price. Friends of the Rich Roll podcast can visit harrys.com forward slash roll to redeem your free trial set, which comes with a razor, five blade cartridge, shaving gel, and post shave gel. All you got to do is pay shipping. Also, MeUndies, the world's most comfortable underwear. Visit MeUndies.com forward slash roll to get free shipping in the US and Canada and 20% off your first pair. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiello for audio engineering and production. Sean Patterson for all his wizardry on the graphics, including all those cool motion graphics that I'm sharing on Instagram and Instagram stories. Theme music by Analemma. Also, if you guys are into uh, what I'm doing fitness-wise, training-wise, follow me on Instagram. I'm essentially vlogging all of my training on Instagram stories. Every single day, I kind of share what my workout is. I do a before and I do an after. You can also follow me on Strava to get the details on that. And that's it for now. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here soon. Peace.